All right, before we open up to 2 Peter 2, let's go before the Lord in prayer again. Father, I thank you that we can gather together as your church this morning, um, even as we say painful goodbyes, uh, we can still remain confident and hopeful in the fact that we are all always a part of your body um, and that we will be united with you and with one another for all of eternity. Um, and we can, we can live and rest in that hope even as we um, have to say goodbye at times, like this morning with the Davises. We just pray that you would fill all of us with your spirit this morning as we read in Second Peter about the confidence that we can have in that hope that we have in you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> if you haven't already, you can open up, like I said, to Second Peter 2, chapter 2. We're going to be in the first 10 verses this morning. <clears throat> we all know what it's like to be afraid, right? Childhood fears of the dark or the monster under the bed, adult fears of the economy or job loss, failed relationships, irrational fears that defy common sense, and very rational fears of very rational dangers, we all know what it's like to be afraid at times. Have you ever been afraid for the church? I'm not talking just about Edgewater specifically, but on a broader level, the church as a whole, have you ever been afraid for it? Have you looked at the attacks of the enemy from without and the weaknesses and the failings from inside and feared about what might be coming next? Have you ever thought what we read in Psalm 11 earlier, if the foundations are destroyed, what are the righteous supposed to do? My newsfeed has been filled for the last several weeks with stories about the Methodist church seemingly falling apart. Churches leaving the denomination, individual congregations divided amongst each other over the issues of homosexuality and LGBT issues. What do we do with that? A few weeks ago, I was reading opposing articles, both for and against, about a new book from an Anglican minister arguing that Jesus, because he was, well, Jesus was the product of just a woman, Mary, and so he wasn't really a man. 
he was intersex or non-binary. And because of that, that's the only way a woman could really trust him as a savior because he wasn't really a man. What do we do with that? The prosperity gospel still flourishes in the American church, saying God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and happy. God wouldn't tell you to take up your cross, tell you to count the cost before you follow him, to lay down your life for his sake. And then there are false teachers that are just fear mongers trying to convince you that we are already facing life and death persecution and that we have to be ready to stand up and fight against it. It seems like everywhere we look, there are false teachers that spring up teaching a new false doctrine. What are we supposed to do when it seems like the foundations are constantly under attack? Does it cause us to fear? Those are the kinds of questions that Peter's going to answer this morning in 2 Peter chapter 2. Last week, Joey brought us the end of chapter 1, and that passage is all about the certainty that we have in Christ. We can be certain that Jesus is who he said he was. Peter saw Jesus in all of his glory when he was transfigured. Peter heard with his own ears the Father proclaiming his eternal pleasure in his Son. And even more than that, we have the prophetic word of God like a lamp shining in a dark place. We can be confident in the objective truth and glory of God's revelation to us. Jesus is the Son of God and the Father is well pleased with him. The apostles stand witness to that. God's word stands witness to it. The Father himself stands witness to it. But if that's the case, if God's word is so objectively true, then why are there so many false teachers teaching false teachings? And why do they seem so successful? Peter knows these questions are going to arise. They were coming up in his day. People were tempted to think that the gospel was in danger of being snuffed out forever. And Peter knows that his time is drawing to a close. And so before he leaves, he wants the church to know that they can be confident in the truth of God's word and that they do not have to be afraid for the future of the church just because it's being attacked by false teachers. Let's read the first three verses of chapter 2 together. Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. 
And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. The first thing Peter says to reassure us that we don't have to be afraid of all these false teachers popping up is that they've always been around. Which might not sound that reassuring at first. Like, Peter, I'm really worried about these teachers. Oh, there have always been false teachers. Peter, I'm really worried about the sound the car's making. The car's always making that sound. Nothing's going to happen. But essentially what Peter is saying is, there's nothing new under the sun. And that's just as true of false teachers as it is of anything else. Right? There, you see all of these false teachers and you're tempted to be afraid. There's nothing new. They haven't found a magic attack that will be able to destroy God's people. Because the thing is, the enemy really only has one lie that he can dress up in different clothing. Did God really say that? You won't surely die. You can be like God. That's the only play he has in his playbook. And we know it doesn't work because Christ has already defeated him. And so we don't have to be afraid. Peter goes on from there to give descriptions of false teachers so that we can know them when we see them. First, he says they secretly bring in destructive heresies. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They secretly bring in destructive heresies. They don't proclaim from the pulpit, what I'm teaching is false. This is something new. This is something poisonous. They do it in secret. They try to persuade whoever will listen. This isn't anything different than what you've always heard. This is just a different perspective. This is the loving way to look at it. I know you think that's what it says. I know that you think that's what you've been told it says. But this is what it really says. This is what God really means. And that's one of the first things to be on the lookout in false teachers. Is, is what they are saying new? Is it different? Is it something that seems contradictory with everything you've ever heard and been taught before? Then it's probably false. That doesn't mean that we can't ever learn new things about God and have a deeper perspective. But does it fly in the face of what you already know? He describes that even further by saying they even deny the master who bought them. If they're denying Christ as their master, then the obvious question is, who is their master? Right? They had to place someone else in his position. We all have to serve somebody. 
ultimately what they've done is they've set themselves up as their own masters. Their own desires, their own thoughts become their ultimate authority, not Christ. They believe and they propagate the lie that we can be like God. They've rejected the authority of his revelation. They've rejected the authority of his word. And so pay attention to what sort of authority it is that they appeal to. If they quote their own writings the same way that we would quote scripture and act like they've been referred to the final authority on a subject, you should run from that teacher. If it seems like they're starting with a premise that seems a little weird and, and working backwards to scripture to try to make it fit into the mold and make it say something that you didn't expect it to say, you should run from that teacher. If they're twisting scripture into knots and making it say something that is the exact opposite of everything you've heard before, you need to run from that teacher. The second thing that Peter describes about them is that they, in their greed, will exploit you with false words. False teachers are exploitive. They're greedy. It's in their nature. Last week, I promise I'm not calling Andy out. Last week he told us where the offering box was in the back. Later that week someone told me, I saw multiple people who have been coming here for years look back in surprise. They clearly had no idea that offering box existed until Andy said something. That wouldn't be true of a false teacher. You would know exactly where and how to give all the time, every possible way, and they would constantly be harping on it. See, I told you I wasn't calling Andy out. <laughs> They're exploitive and greedy, and it shows. They can't hide it. I don't remember who it was, but there were a few years ago. It, it doesn't really matter because it's true of all of them. There was a televangelist who said that God told him God wanted him to have a private jet. And so people should give to his ministry so he could get the private jet God wanted him to have. The Lord who said the son of man, or sorry, who said birds have nests and foxes have dens, but the son of man has no place to lay his head, did not tell him you should have a private jet. Jesus told the disciples that in his kingdom, those who lead and have authority aren't supposed to lord it over their people. Because that's the exact opposite of who he is. He did not see equality with God as something to be grasped and held onto and fought for. Instead, he emptied himself for us. 
and he calls those who are his under shepherds under him to care for his flock that way too. To be bountifully, sacrificially caring for their needs and to trust the Father to meet their own. And so we ought to be asking ourselves, is that the kind of teacher that I'm listening to? Or are they constantly trying to find ways to make more money? If they're always trying to get you to subscribe to their channel, you might want to rethink them. If they're constantly peddling their books, or if they're trying to cause fear in your heart, and then tell you, and if you want to know how to respond to these dangers that you're now afraid of, buy my book and it'll tell you how. That's probably a false teacher. And as obvious as the false teachers might seem to be after those descriptions, Peter admits in verse 3 that there are many who will follow them. And we can probably all think of a list of people we know and love that have followed after false teaching. People we love, people we've walked with together as we followed Christ who have been deceived and lured away. But even in that, Peter says we don't have to be afraid. His argument has been this. God's revelation in his son and in his word is absolutely trustworthy and true. Yes, there will be false teachers who attack the very foundations of the church and the gospel. But do not fear. They have always existed. And even more than that, they will fail in the end. Peter says in verse 3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Just because they seem successful now does not mean that is the way it will be. God has not forgotten. He isn't blind. He isn't powerless. God knows how to judge sin. And it seems like part of their denial of Christ being our master was this idea that you didn't have to worry about the judgment of God. Whether they were actually saying that specifically or just living in a way that said, I, don't, I can do whatever I want. In the end, they were denying that judgment was coming. And we know what that's like, right? Our culture is a culture that is obsessed with the idea that judgment is one of the greatest sins you can commit. A sin they're willing to judge harshly over. I mean, how many times have you heard someone deny God's righteous anger over sin by saying, oh, no, 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 my God isn't like that. My God's a God of love. He wouldn't do that or say that. 
Peter says the, their judgment is not idle. Their destruction isn't asleep. He's about to give examples, and essentially what Peter is saying is, where in the world did you get the idea that God isn't going to judge sin? And if you don't believe me, he says, look at these examples, starting in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the, until the judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. God knows how to judge sin. But that's not all. Peter says God also knows how to preserve his people in the midst of trials. When it seems like everything is falling apart, when you don't know what you're supposed to do, when you don't know how things can continue the way that they seem to be going, Peter says, don't fear. God knows how to judge sin and to save his people. First, Peter asks us to consider Noah. He tells us God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah and his family. Just like in Peter's day and in our day, in Peter's time, people were convinced that their own desires, their own wants and thoughts were the final authority on how to live their lives. And that went rampant throughout all of creation. God looked at the heart of man and he said, the wickedness of man is great on the earth. And every intention of his thoughts, of the thoughts of his heart, were only evil continually. It had grown so great that everything was just constantly about sin. To taking for themselves, doing what they wanted. God wasn't powerless in the face of humanity's opposition to him. On the contrary, he destroyed all of humanity, all of, and on top of that, all of creation. The, the flood account reads like an undoing of his creation because that's what he was doing. He looked at his creation day after day and said, it is good. But now the continual evil intentions of mankind has corrupted everything. And so he undoes all of the good work that he did. But even in the midst of all of that death and destruction, there was still mercy and hope. In Genesis 6, 8, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then after a long description of the death and the devastation that the flood brought, 
comes Genesis 8.1, but God remembered Noah. God blotted out every living thing on the earth, every mammal, every human being, man and woman, everything struggled against the waves and fought and gasped for breath until they finally gave in to God's judgment of sin. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord remembered him. God knows how to judge sin and to save his people. Peter moves on from there and asks us to consider Lot. And if you remember, God came to Abraham before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and told Abraham what he was going to do. And Abraham knows that Lot is there, that Lot's in danger. And so he enters into this like plea bargain with God, right? He says, if there's just 50 righteous men in the city, will you still destroy it? Will you allow the righteous to be swept away, he says. And God says, no, if there are 50, I'll spare the city for their sake. And Abraham knows there's not 50. So he says, well, okay, what if there are only 45? What then? Would you, would, you, would you sweep the 45 away just because they're five people short? And God says, no, for 45, if there are 45, I'll spare all of the city for their sake. And Abraham keeps working his way down until he finally gets to 10. He says, if there are 10... Will you still spare the city? And God says, yes. But there aren't ten righteous men in Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot stood alone as the single remnant of righteousness in the city. And so Noah's question, or excuse me, Abraham's question still stands. Will you sweep the righteous away? What's going to happen to Lot? And of course, God's answer is a resounding no. I will not allow my righteous to be swept away in the judgment. And so God pulls off this kind of crazy rescue mission, like something out of Saving Private Ryan or Black Hawk Down, where he sends two angels into the city hours before he's going to destroy it to pull Lot and his family out to escape the destruction. And they won't go. Lot's lingering. He, he, they tell him what God is going to do. They tell him he has to run now. And Lot's still lingering. Like, I don't know. So has God fulfilled his responsibility to Lot? Is Lot no longer righteous because he refuses to obey? No, God still knows how to save his people even if it's despite their own best efforts. And so in a rather startling display of irresistible grace, the angels literally grab Lot and his family and physically drag them out of the city against their will to save them from the judgment that's coming. God knows how to judge sin and to save people. 
his righteousness, his justice would not allow the cities to continue in their rebellion, in their destruction. But he would not allow his people to fall with them. Peter gives us two very stark examples of God's judgment of sin. They're stories that can make us uncomfortable. Stories that can heighten our holy fear of God's judgment. But also stories that can stir up that sinful fear of God. The one that made Adam and Eve hide try to make clothing out of fig leaves. We can be uncomfortable with those stories. Because God hates sin and we are sinful people. But at the heart of both of those stories, both in the original tellings in Genesis and in Peter's retelling them now, what is at center stage is not God's judgment, but his salvation. Yes, he knows how to judge sin, but he knows how to save too. So again, Peter's argument through this passage has been this. We can have confidence in God's revelation. God's word is true. Jesus is who he says he is. Yes, there will be false teachers. They're going to attack that truth. They're going to attack it fiercely. And it might seem like the foundations are in danger of being destroyed. But that should not cause you to doubt or fear. Because if God knows how to destroy a sinful world with a flood and yet save Noah, if he knows how to turn Sodom and Gomorrah to ash and save Lot even when he didn't want to be saved, then God knows how to do the same for us. The Lord knows how to judge sin and how to save us. And that's exactly what Peter says at the end of our passage, verse 9. If God did not spare the angels, if God did not spare the ancient world or Sodom and Gomorrah, yet saved Noah and saved Lot, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. You can have confidence in God's word. You can have confidence in his justice and his righteousness. And you can have confidence in his salvation. There have always been trials and tribulations and persecutions and false teachings. And God has never stopped caring for and loving and protecting and saving his people. 
so that's the first point of application is church don't be afraid when you see attacks on the church when you see attacks on god's word itself when you see attacks on jesus our master don't be afraid don't have doubt you have a sure and confident hope in him so be bold in that hope when you face personal trials don't look to your bank account or your job or your relationships or your own good works be bold in trusting that the lord knows how to deal with trials and to preserve you when you see the church facing trials persecutions false teachings don't look to attendance numbers or court decisions or elections or anything else in man. Be boldly confident that God is the one who preserves his people. That he has never allowed the truth of the gospel to be snuffed out and he never will. He is a loving father who is caring for us. So how do we do that? What does it look like to have that bold trust? Peter didn't choose his two examples randomly. I think the second point of application is be like Noah and Lot. And if you know their stories, that might sound a little odd at first because in both of their stories, their sins and their failings are right on display. But they found favor in God's eyes, and God declared them righteous. Peter calls Noah a herald of righteousness. Everyone knew what Noah was doing and why. Year after year, as he built the ark, it was a proclamation that judgment is coming, but there's hope. He was a herald of righteousness. He was constantly telling those around him, you cannot continue to live like this. What you're doing is a poison to yourself. It is going to end. God will judge our sin. But God has provided a means of escape. He was a herald of righteousness. Noah didn't have a single convert. And yet he never stopped proclaiming the truth of God's revelation. That there is hope and escape and salvation to be found in God. And Peter tells us that Lot, for all of his failings, was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness that he saw around him. Lot did not grow numb or hard to the city that he lived in. Lot didn't go around looking at the things around him thinking, well, what do you expect in that neighborhood? I probably know what his home life was like. What do you expect when you hang out with a crowd like that? 
Lot saw the city around him hurtling towards destruction, and it broke him. It wasn't just an occasional remembrance. A once in a while when you see a particularly pathetic example that you're reminded of it. It says it was day after day he was tormenting his soul by what he saw. Church, we ought to be like Noah and Lot. We should be heralds of righteousness. If we could see sin for what it really was, and if we really believed that their judgment is not idle, that their condemnation is not asleep, then we shouldn't be able to stop talking about the hope that can be found. We shouldn't be able to go about our day as we go through this city and not talk about what we know and the hope that we have in our Savior. And when we see those around us rushing to judgment and destruction, we shouldn't grow complacent or hardened because we know the hope that we have. Are our hearts tormented by the lost people around us? Or when we see false teachers rising up in the church and people following after them, do we think, well, if you only knew your Bible like I did, or if only you went to a church as good as my church, or are we tormented by the fact that someone is being deceived and lured away? And when we see false teachers, we should condemn them for what they are because it is dangerous. It is poison and cancer that will kill people who follow after them. But our hearts should be tormented for them too. They deny the master. But Peter did once too. Peter denied the master. And there was still hope in that. God knew how to save Peter too. Church, you can have confidence and hope in God's revelation, in his son and in his word. You can be confident that God will judge sin and he will save us from trials. Be bold and not afraid. But in knowing that and living like that, don't grow complacent. If we really believe that God knows how to judge sin, 
and that that is coming, then we should be people who are desperate to see others brought into that salvation. You have a sure hope in God who knows how to judge sin and save people. Be lovingly confident in that hope. Let's pray. Certainly, Father, you are such a good and loving Father. And Lord, we rejoice in the fact that we can have confidence in you, confidence that you know how to save us. Even despite our best efforts, even if we go so far as to, not, to deny you like Peter did, that you know how to save us. And Lord, you know how to save those around us. Lord, make us like Noah and Lot. Make us a church that is desperate to see the lost around us come to you before it's too late. We love you, Lord. Amen.